Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 166, Email Grab Bag, recorded October 26th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and we are joined this week by the one and only Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hello, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to all of the Faith Element Opiites out there. We are so glad you could join us. All of the Faith Mint? I couldn't let that go. Sorry. Did I say Faith, faith Mint? I, you said Faith oh. Mint. <laughs> You were trying to jump into the word element. Uh, Chris is not with yeah. us tonight. He had uh, he had homework to do. Um, he didn't finish his math homework. It's due in the morning. Uh, so he, he couldn't be here with us. Um, I told him I'm going to send him to bed without dinner. Uh, but no, he, 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 had, he had some work thing come up. Couldn't be here. So it's just the two of us. Just the two of us. Um, it's going to be just the one of you if you keep that up. <laughs> Um, and, and of course you, you are the third leg of the stool or something like that, because this week is a listener feedback, uh, show we, you guys, you kept sending me so much. I couldn't get through them all. If I just put one or two in a show, which is good. So this is a collection of emails, some old, some new, um, some borrowed, some blue. No, that's different. Um, but here we go. But first Seth has a question for you and for me. And he wants to know got, if, oh yeah, go ahead and read it then. He wants to know if we should ha- uh, speak the the three of us uh, at Libra Planet conference in March. Yes, Libra Planet. There, it's kind of hosted by the Free Software Foundation. And in doing my uh, internet perusal for awesome EDL news stories, I came across a thing. Uh, this person put. The, um, I spoke at Libra Planet. It was fun. You should too. And I thought about it. And I was like, Hey, the whole EDL game could go and we could do a live show at Libra Planet. The presentation or the call for like presentations is due in by next Sunday. So we have a week from the recording, a couple of days from the airing. What do you guys think? Is that something that the free software community would love to hear? Uh, the mavericks of the free software world, or do you think that, um, they would not let us in the door? I, th- I think after, if, if they went and heard any of my, uh, comments on Stallman, I would be barred from entry. Well, I mean, you know, just, and this is the whole name that we're not the GNU slash Linux. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They, everyday GNU slash Linux. I don't know how much uh, traction we'd get with them either. Oh, uh, that would, that would, that would be worth trying just for that to see if they tried to make us change the title of the show or something. What, what would we talk about though? What would be our topic? I mean, it would just be a, you know, it would be a live show. So, you know, we would be doing a live show, uh, in front of people. And Do they have three hour slots there? <laughs> well, it could be a short <laughs> show. Uh, you know, we, and then we could host topics. We could host questions from the crowd instead of news. So it would That's be true. just a bit of warm up, you know. Um, I don't know. They probably wouldn't like us to do, a a quote or a, uh, an ad, an ad right from their floor, but you know, maybe one or two news stories and then questions from the, rogues gallery i could always insert an ad later i'm sure we'd get questions like why do you hate freedom uh, things like right. that okay. why do you love windows 
Um, yeah, I, I think I love it. I, the The idea would be neck beards need not apply, you know, uh, because we 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 stand for the rest of us. We're Linux for the for the rest of us. Um, no, wait, that's you know, it's another like podcast. No, yeah. What's the point if we exclude the everyone? Yeah, you know, who cares if it's free if nobody gets it, right? I mean, I well, I don't know. Lots of people, yeah. I guess. <laughs> everybody, everybody <laughs> goes to Libra Planet. So we need to go ahead and and write up that proposal and and be ready to go. the The travel would be, you know, a bit difficult and expensive. It's in it's in Mass. Everything up there happens in in Massachusetts for some reason. Um, and you know, it would, it would be time off of work and all that, but it's, it's definitely something I would be worth considering. Uh, if yeah, you I, are audience say that you would like to like it to happen. I would take like a Friday, Monday off of work or so and fly up there and, you know, I mean, might as well. <laughs> I mean, I took a whole week off to go to Chicago and hang around people who I had no business hanging around. So <laughs> I'd do it again over a weekend. All right. So uh, what do you think, guys, audience, gals? Um, and my only thing, I was surprised today when the mailman showed up at my house at 7.30 on a Sunday morning today. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think they did that. I mean, the U.S. mail is considering dropping Saturday delivery because they've uh, said they're losing so much money on it. But I ordered something, Amazon Prime, uh, on, on Friday, after, Friday evening at like 9 p.m., Eastern time, and it came today at like eight p.m. eight a.m. Sunday morning. Wow! Uh, so, like any good geek, I went to the web and said, "What's up with this?" And it turns out Amazon has a deal with the U.S. Post Office, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a Prime member. Um, not everything is eligible. There's there the Amazon says quote millions of items, uh, but they will deliver on Sunday. And UPS uh, hires temp workers, so they're not full regular UPS people. Uh, to get in the UPS, uh, not, sorry, not UPS, USPS, the post post office. Um, they hire temp people to get in the postal trucks and drive around. And and I had put something in the mailbox to be picked up, knowing it wouldn't be picked up until Monday morning, but just I didn't want to forget about it. So it was there and the flag was up and they totally ignored that. They stuffed the package in the mailbox and ran. So uh, what what makes that interesting to me is that a lot of people, and I used to, I don't anymore, um, have things delivered to work because they're more likely to be at work than at home. But now that I have a, a wife who stays at home and doesn't work, it's much more convenient for me to just have things come to work. But so what happens if you had things come to work on a Sunday? Do they, are they unable to deliver it? Do they send it back? I I don't know how that works. Well, a lot of posts, a lot of places have hold things like, I worked for a school district and I won't say the name of the school district, but one of the high ups, uh, in the central office, she put a hold on everything when she took vacation. So we would order something, you know, like a, comp- like a part for a server that's down and we can't get it for three weeks because she went on vacation that day and the post office can't deliver because she stopped all of our deliveries. So, um, so a lot of times organizations will have an agreement with the post office. You know, here's what you do for off hours. Oh, interesting though. So Amazon, uh, apparently they made this deal started in New York 
and have just been adding cities. And now it's the, they didn't have any specifics. It was just said most of the country. So there you go. You can now get certain items delivered on Sunday from Amazon. So yeah, this was, uh, like 30 hour turnaround time. It wasn't quite 24, but it was close. Um, and which is good because it was part of my Halloween costume. So it worked out nicely. <laughs> that is good. My wife is making me an Olaf costume, Olaf from Frozen. So my, ah. my youngest daughter, Elise, is going to be Elsa, and I'm going to be Olaf. So <laughs> that will be good because, you know, it's the the ratio reversal. Instead of right. little Olaf and big Elsa, it's going to be big Olaf and little Elsa. I think it will be funny. I'm probably one of the only people left in America who have not seen that movie. So oh. um, between if between Frozen and ET, I've still I've never seen either one. Really? Wow! Really? If you've got a couple hours. I could quote the entire movie. We could start now. Uh, <laughs> no, that's all right. Every day Disney's not till next week. <laughs> Because I've seen it many, many times. But a movie that I have seen and still love is They Live with Rowdy Roddy Piper. And it was on sun Saturday. I was flipping through the channels and I was like, They Live. And I was like, wait a minute. That's They Live. That's so I, go and yeah. I go, Rowdy Piper, yeah. And so I did the little uh, thing to set the timer on dish where it, you know, a minute before it automatically flips over there and the football game wasn't that exciting. So I watched they live and I gotta say it holds up well for that movie's like over 25 years old now. It, the reason it holds up well, it was, was it was so cheap in the beginning, right? right? It, it is as low quality today as it was then. And so it works. It, it fits right in with all cheap movies. Um, you know, it's got a plot that's, uh, difficult to follow. It's got acting that you can barely call acting, um, right. and it's fun, and it's never, it doesn't stop being fun. Right. And, you know, and it, I just, I love the line, I came here to chew bubble gum, and, <laughs> and I'm all out of bubble gum. Yeah. So uh, it was it was funny. And then it got me remembering that a guy I went to high school with, we, we went off kind of on that movie and just took certain lines of it and went other places. And so as they would say those, I was transported back to my high school years and started laughing, not at anything that happened on the screen, but just conversations I had with my friends that, uh, you know, we took like one line and made up a whole, um, made up just a whole little alternate reality thing off of that. And so they say that one line and all of a sudden I'm not watching they live talking with a high school friend from 25 years ago. It was awesome stuff. Yeah. That the best, best on-screen fight scene ever bar. Yes. Yes. Although I got to admit because fight scenes have got so much more, you know, the editing on them has gotten so much better you can see where they're missing the punches. Yeah. You know, it doesn't quite hit, but yet they still do the sound uh, effect that it did, but it was still brutal and awesome. So I, I watched Captain America 2 Winter Winter Soldier this week. I got it on DVD, and I watched it again. Uh, it was a fun movie. I enjoy it. But every time Captain America hits a regular guy, I think that should that should have crushed his skull. End of fight scene. One punch, it's over. And yeah, it, that's the problem he, with all superhero movies. Spider-Man, Superman, Batman. Well, maybe not Batman because he's just a dude. But Captain America, all these amped up guys. Iron Man, he punches you. That is the end of your existence. Why do we have seven-minute fight scenes with Captain America? It shouldn't be that way. 
see, well, in in the comics, at least originally, he wasn't able to run through walls. He was just like the most perfect man ever existed. Well, that changed so, though, because in the in yeah. the later series, he became almost Superman like in his powers. Yeah, and that's not the Captain America I knew. So <laughs> you know, uh, it, the the movies are great, but they're like it's like I recognize the superheroes I grew up with, but at the same time, they're a little different because the Iron Man that I knew wasn't the most powerful character in the universe. He wouldn't be able to stand toe to toe with Thor. He would have right. got his little suit ripped up. Uh, and you know, it's amazing. Well, anyway. Just that's I could go plot holes all throughout the yeah. Marvel movies, but I will say Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I tried so hard to like you. I really, really wanted to, but well, I, I really like it. I have I am totally into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, I, I try. And there was this, you know, I mean, it's from a couple of episodes where the Hydra people had the the, the silk mask of transfiguration yes, or yes. whatever. And so, uh, that, you know, that makes you three inches taller as well. Right. So, uh, the, the chick was fighting herself. That was kind of funny, but I was just like, I don't like, I wanted to, it, there's never been a series I wanted to like as much as I wanted to like this one. I felt that way about defiance on sci-fi. I really wanted to like that show and I just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to like that one, but not as much as I wanted to like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, yeah, so uh, Captain America from the original Captain America movie and the Avengers, that Captain America is more amped up human. Then in, in right. the Winter Soldier, he became Superman with a shield, um, which is interesting to me, but, uh, you know, whatever. You could say he's had more time to train or whatever. I, I don't know. But, yeah, he... Uh, he did he did definitely amp it up quite a lot in the second movie. And then, right. you know, he he goes toe to toe, spoiler alert, he goes toe to toe with the Winter Soldier who has had some augmentation as well. Right? But again, right. it should be a couple of punches your face no longer exists and a fight. Um well, but from both of them, really, because right. they've both received some super soldier type serum. You could argue that Captain America's was better. Right. So therefore he doesn't need the titanium arm. Exactly. The, the, the liquid titanium that flows, but maintains his <laughs> arm like shape. Um, but yeah, it just totally, I don't, you know, it's like suspend disbelief. You, you gotta, you gotta just say this is what they're yeah, doing. And so in the new age of Ultron, um, vision, from from this is all uh, uh, hearsay and supposition. The vision is going to be Jarvis in a suit, okay, which is anticlimactic because at the end of Iron Man three, Jarvis was in like seventy five suits. So why right. would he step back? <laughs> and if and if Jarvis could control all the suits, why do we even need Iron Man anymore? He could just sit back in his living room and eat popcorn and let Jarvis fight crime. Well, I. Well, and here I don't know how much they're going to stick to the Vision um, origin story, but he was created by Ultron, so maybe it's remnants of Jarvis that were in one of the armors that Ultron got a hold of. You know, maybe that's a way to explain how it's Jarvis, but yet he can't control everything. Yeah, I maybe. Know. I mean, that's. But and again, the the house party protocol could have ended. Everything in the Avengers could have just taken care of that. 
Right. You know, it's like the, we have this thing that uh, Iron Man 3 should have been about a nine-minute movie. Oh, there's helicopters coming in. Jarvis, activate highest party part- protocol. Everybody's dead. All right, now let's go on our vacation. Um, so, I'm sorry. I, I know it's a superhero movie, and I'm willing to give you wide berths, superhero writers, but you have to have some at least internally consistent logic. You don't have to have logic in- consistent with the real world, but you have to be consistent with yourself. And Iron Man 3 let me down in every way. Iron Man 2 was better than Iron Man 3, and it was not good in terms yeah, of I, internal consistently logic. Yeah, Iron Man, who can stand toe-to-toe with Thor, gets his little whip beat out of him every time by these metahumans who explode. Yeah. But yeah, he can he can hang toe-to-toe with the Norse God of Thunder. So those people must be really powerful. <laughs> yeah, a guy who took the best Hulk has to offer couldn't take down iron man right okay sorry that totally went way out of control there but that's what happens when chris isn't here actually it happens when chris is here too right and it was just shorter because there was only two of us doing it (laughs) i'm telling you we got to do a movie podcast seth it needs to happen we do we need to because every time one of these things comes out on dvd and that's my plan for it right we don't we don't really review in the theater things we review when the dvd comes out that way spoiler alerts are are fair game and we can talk about you know captain america 2 winter soldier (laughs) because they're already working on the new and then we can really just go to town with it we need to make this happen have your people call my people i will do that uh have your people send dvds to my people (laughs) so i will i will buy you a netflix subscription the 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 DVD by mail version because bandwidth the uh, wouldn't you, your bandwidth wouldn't support the streaming one. Nope, it does not support it. Okay, um, moving on along to our listener feedback. A fellow who calls himself Luke Word is uh, re- re- giving us some response to episode number thirty three. So this is a guy who's gone back to the beginning, and uh, and I don't know if he heard about us and then went back or I don't know. I don't know the story there. But all the way 133 episodes ago, where we were talking about our first computers. So in three years, we'll hear his answer to That's the right. question. Uh, so Lookward says, I think the first computer I ever used was a Windows 98 machine. No idea what the specs were. He's considerably younger than I am. Uh, the first machine I owned is the one I'm sending from right now. An IBM T43 with an Intel Centrino processor. Two gigs of DDR uh, 128 megs of graphics memory and a 40 gigabyte Fujitsu hard drive. Wow. I got it for $50 on eBay. You overpaid. It came with Windows XP and I switched Maybe. to an Ubuntu 14.04 LTS install in the summer of this year. So the first time he ever bought a computer was in this year, apparently. Yeah. So maybe he didn't overpay back when he bought it. Yeah. Uh, due to end of support from Microsoft, I've been pleased with the Switch, and Everyday Linux makes it more interesting yet indeed. I have I did not discover EDL or podcasts in general until Rhythmbox presented me with a podcast button. A possible topic for the show, what experiences do we find upon entering a Linux user forum? That's all for now. Take care and be Opie. Luke Word Cookie. Pretty sure that's not his real name. That's a, That is actually a really good idea. We have talked about that idea in the past of of you know you you get the rtfm response from the neck beard um but maybe what we need to do 
is get somebody like Jen Huger and have her do that and, you know, be our, our man on the streets and say, go to this forum and try to get help and see what happens. Or we could just create an account and, and be like, Hey guys, I just, I'm trying to install this and it won't work. Why? Yeah, we could do that, but we wouldn't have the, 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 the proper range of emotions, right? We would, we would know what to expect. We would recognize bad advice when we got it. Uh, a newbie doesn't. Um, and one of my, I I appreciate excited newbies who want to help other newbies, but if you have been using Linux for a couple of weeks, you shouldn't be giving advice to anybody. And you often see that in forums. You go in there and some guy who doesn't know any more than you says, try this. And you know, the, the solution they gave you is how to cut down an apple tree when you ask them how to install Linux on a laptop. Right. So yeah, I think that would be an interesting experiment. We need to find our our uh, resident neophyte and just send them out on on reconnaissance missions. That that would be a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. just to to do that could be a recurring segment. Uh, okay, uh, moving on. Mike was inspired by a rant. That makes me feel good because I rant Woo-hoo! a lot. It's nice to know some of them do good. Hi, guys. A few episodes back, Mark had a rant about people who sit on fences without getting involved in whatever they're moaning about. I think I may have mentioned this before, but it really struck a chord with me. You were absolutely right. Of course I was. Um, so here's my good news story, in no small part inspired by the rant. I love my Android phone, and I've been looking out for a simple little scripting language for a while. Of course, I found one called Algoid. Check it out. It's basically a turtle programming language like many others, but what really grabbed me is that you don't need any additional scripting layers. Just install and play. I feel I should point out that I'm no app developers. I've tinkered with lots of programming languages before, but where apps are concerned, I'm largely clueless. Anyway, it was clear that the developer's first language is not English. The uh, help documentation is pretty good, but just needed a bit of help. However, I should feel... I should. I feel I should point out that English is way his English is way better than my French. One light bulb moment later, I got in touch with a developer on Google Plus and offered to help out. So far, so far it's going well and I'm gradually chipping away as time permits. The developer is a really nice and helpful guy. I had a few questions and he's clearly passionate about it. One day I'm hoping to have a look at the app, source code and see and even if I only only if I sniff to see how much I can get my head around. I do have a mathematical background, so a turtle programming language like this intrigues me. So there you go. You guys are making a difference out there in internet land. I expect this will inspire me to progress onto other things too. Well, that's excellent. I appreciate that, Mike. Um, you, you keep going there. And then he continues on, on an unrelated note, I finally have a Linux PC that I use regularly. It began life as a Windows 7 netbook and became the slowest darn computer I've ever laid eyes on. It was almost unusable, so I'd been con- so it had been consigned to a shelf in order to gather dust. Now it is reborn with a very usable Linux Mint machine, capable of even playing some half-decent games. I'm still a long way from being a Linux expert, but this experience is overwhelmingly positive. Another unrelated note, shouldn't Seth have got that Red Hat woman's phone number? Ruth, was it? Making jokes about raspberry pies and bacon could be a match made in heaven, no? Okay, I've waffled on long enough. Thanks for keeping us entertained and even inspiring me to do something. Keep it up, one and all. Cheers, Mike the Brit. Well, Mike, first of all, she's married, so no need to get the phone number there. 
<laughs> uh, you know, marriage is a fluid state of a. Never mind. Uh, so that's cool, Mike. I'm glad this. I I really. I mean, it's just not just lip service. I really appreciate it when somebody takes action, uh, and it's even more heartwarming to me that to know that I inspired you to action because uh, honestly. The goal of this podcast is to entertain you first, to educate you second, and if I can inspire you, that's a bonus. And so it it makes me feel good that I did that. Uh, often I I think I come on here and I bloviate about something and I espouse some some beliefs, and I don't know if anybody's paying attention or if the ones who are paying attention even care. So Mike, I really appreciate the feedback, honestly, truly, and I'm glad that you are helping out. And you know, translating. Uh, or you're not really translating, you're just fleshing out English documentation written by a French native French speaker. That's no small thing. And every English speaking person who uses that app will directly benefit from your work. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it really is. So congratulations. Um, I, I, you know, and then hearing you uh, say you're inspired by us, that just kind of helps us keep going. Uh, as we go, you know, because sometimes, oh, it's, it's episode 100, it's 101, it's 102. It's, it's really cool. Uh, put some passion back in the monotony. So we appreciate that as well. All right. And moving on to the next bit of listener feedback, it is from Jason who comments on last mile broadband. Hey, Mark, Chris, and Seth. Actually, it's just Mark and Seth this week, Jason. I've been listening for a while, and I've never found time to write you guys to tell you what an awesome podcast you make. The sheer randomness of the topics and the tangents you guys go off on is what makes EDL so entertaining. Keep it up! However, I've got to say, Mark, that I'm surprised you've surprised you've never heard of Chow Chow before, being a Southerner, as you proclaim. I'm from Seneca, South Carolina, and all of my aunts have their own select versions of Chow Chow, some admittedly better than others. All right, so here's this thing. I think Texas, while being Southern, is very much not the South as you South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia people think it. The old South, the antebellum South. You guys have your own culture. And Texas, I've never heard of Chow Chow. Seth, you'd never heard of Chow Chow, right? I'm Googling it right now. Oh, is the Chow Chow relish? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I've... I'm trying to look and see what the real name of it is called. Uh, what we here in Texas would call it. Um, it's it's like a uh, at least the one I experienced was like a pickle relish, but it was pickled cabbage instead of pickled cucumbers. Ah, so yeah, we would just call that pickle relish. Um, we wouldn't ha- we wouldn't feel the need to give it another name. <laughs> I, no, I, I I honestly don't know. I had never heard of Chow Chow. So I think this is one case where. I, I find that interesting, though. I, I've commented on it before, that here in Georgia and South Carolina, North Carolina, this that area, you guys think you own the South. And and you say this is the South, and you totally discount the fact that Florida and Texas and even California are pretty darn Southern. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So moving right along, uh, he says, having said all that, I'd like to take a moment to comment on something Mark said in episode 160 about some sort of government program to finish out the last mile and bring broadband to the remaining parts of the country that don't have it currently. I actually think this is a great idea. The area I grew up in, I'm in now, um, had only dial-up means of access, excuse me, I'm 
Let me start over again. The area I grew up in, I'm 27 now, had only dial-up as the means of accessing the internet. And to this day, that is, uh, that's the only wired solution in the area. Uh, yes, that's an edge case, I'll admit, and it's very rural. I don't think that we're quite to the point where a broadband connection to the internet is an absolute must-have for every household. I'll be the first to admit that streaming Netflix or Hulu, if you swing that way, is nice, and being able to tell the cable company to go bugger off is a fantastic thing. However, most any business that doesn't have to be conducted in person can still be done over the phone, uh, and the need for high-speed connection while growing every day isn't yet to the point where I think it could be considered an indispensable service. However, it would be better to address the issue now rather than five years from now when it's a real pressing issue. What I'd really like to see is a way of encouraging competition between ISPs. We all know that when businesses compete, the consumer wins. I'm in much the same boat as you guys on this one. My only real option for high-speed internet, satellite and wireless broadband don't exist, but they do exist, but their restrictions make them unsuitable for my needs, is the local ISP, AT&T in my case. They happen to have a regional monopoly in my area. I'm not sure if it's because they own the local infrastructure or if they're the only company that's willing to service my area or if some sort of government regulation allows them to be the only real provider in my area. Either way, it's a crappy situation. But let's stop right there and address that. It is the government. Essentially, the FCC and the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communication Commission, kind of got together. It divided up the country into regional monopolies. Uh, this was not for broadband, it was for cable television. And then when the cable companies started switching over to broadband, they just kept their regional monopolies. Is that uh, how you understand it too, Seth? Well, yeah, Well, and but part of it, whenever you're talking in the edge areas, there's just really not enough people to support competition. Right, it's not you worth know, the money. Fruitvale, it's, it's too small to have multiple players in the market. Um you know, unless you're going to have a government program to support the infrastructure, in which case, why add that other layer of bureaucracy? I mean, you know, it's everybody loves to talk about competition. And when you live in Dallas or Atlanta or New York or even smaller cities such as Tyler, Texas, uh, I, I'm from East Texas. They have about 100,000 people now. You know, there's lots of people there and in the immediate outlying areas to support competition. But when you're talking about you know, Podunkville, who, you know, only has a two-way high school or only has a one-A high school and only plays six-man football, you just can't really support two ISPs. Um, there's just not enough people. I think the A rating is a specifically Texas thing, so not everybody's going to know what you mean. One-A high school is 230 students or less on average, so tiny. Um, so... Uh, but Seth, your, your point there is that in a more populated area, there's more competition, but that's not true because these regional monopolies go down to the, to the neighborhood level. So in my neighborhood, there are two options. So it's a duopoly, but not a mon- it's not a monopoly. It's a duopoly. It's Comcast or AT&T. Both suck because between the two of them, they get all the business they need. There is no, there, yes, there is technically on the books competition, but both of them have all the customers they can handle. Neither of them have any reason to try to take customers from the others. Well, and they know that if if the, if you go from here, you're only going to go to there. And then there's other people who are leaving there coming to here. Right. So you're losing customers, but you're gaining as many as you're losing. Yeah, so it it's almost, a wash. It almost is of mutual benefit for them both to be terrible to their customers. If we're terrible to our customers... They'll go there, but we can re- be relatively sure they're going to be terrible to their customers and people will come back over here. 
And then you get to pay, you get to charge like disconnect fees, connect fees. And so if you have people who get fed up and quit every year or two and go back and forth, then you're making those fees, those one-time fees yeah. that if you hold on to the customer, you don't get to make. So right. why so, treat the customer good? Continuing with the email here, any program that would extend high-speed internet across the last mile should also focus on getting competition going as well, in my humble opinion. Uh, maybe this means making the infrastructure itself a public property similar to roads and bridges, since many times these lines follow roads anyway. I know this would mean that the government would, would be responsible for overseeing the uh, upkeep of the network, and that would bring several other headaches along with it. Hey, Uncle Sam is my internet. Uncle Sam, my internet is out again. Um, I'm not sure what direction we need to take to fix this issue. I'd love to hear any thoughts or comments you guys have um, uh, have on this. Signed, Jason, again from South Carolina. So uh, we've started commenting commenting on Reddit already, but I think again, I am such an uber conservative. I'm I'm largely I, I tend to vote Republican, but my my leanings are much more libertarian. The trouble is most libertarian candidates are, are wacko. So I don't have a reasonable candidate to vote for. But the libertarian mindset is people should be free to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't directly negatively impact anyone else. And so I that makes me more quote-unquote liberal in certain areas like same-sex marriage, for example. Uh, I don't believe that is a government's business at all. That's a libertarian mindset. Uh, whether you there's a constitutional amendment for or against it, I don't think the government should be in that. So not trying to bring in a hot-button issue, just explaining to you where, where I lie. I'm super conservative um, in so many ways. And I hate the idea of government regulating anything. I think de- deregulation is almost always a good thing. So I'm not sure I'm for regulating that, but... If, if you were going to go that route, the way you would do it is you would give a company X number of years to recoup their investment in the pipe, and then the government takes over the pipe and controls it. And so that's kind of the way electric um, co-ops work in the U.S. now, electric uh, sources. They're a regulated industry. Um, so say um, Georgia Power. I don't even know if that's a company, but let's say it is, uh, goes in and lays all new cable to a new subdivision. They have a certain amount of time to, to recoup the costs on that, but they what they do is they will always be the people who support the pipe, but they then are, allowed, are required to have other people give other people the ability to sell their power. So they become wholesale distributors at that point. So they're selling their electrons wholesale, and then another company, like in Texas, I know Reliant Energy is a big one, uh, will come in and they'll buy TXU, Texas Electric. They'll the, the they'll buy their stuff wholesale at say I don't know a penny an electron, and then uh, Reliant will market up to a penny and a half an electron, uh, and and they'll start selling it that way. So that is a that is a regulated way of having competition, but in the end, it's not real competition because it's all coming from one person. And that one person with within certain rights has the ability to set the price. So I, I'm not sure how useful it would be. The, the more logical thing to do would be the way we did telephones. There was a Federal Telecommun- Telecommunications Infrastructure Fund, TIF, TIF, and it's still around. Anybody who's got a, a phone bill in the U.S., if you look at it, there will be a TIF tax on your phone. They're still collecting that. 
Uh, and that whole the whole point of that was to to do last mile connectivity places where it wasn't profitable wasn't uh, worthwhile for companies to run telephone cables to these rural areas they were the, given grants that were paid for by TIF well pretty much now everybody has last mile connectivity um, but those taxes are still being taken up and so what the government did was they turned their attention to education and so they there's this thing called e rate uh, it's a discount based on the percentage of poor students you have in your school. So you could have up to a 90% discount. So you go to a, a provider and say, I want a new blade server. And if your price is $10,000 on it, you're going to sell it to me for $1,000 because I have a 90% discount. The government will pay you the other $9,000. And so that's what they're doing with those taxes. And that's fine. But the, the thing is, as that's gone over the years, they're even having a hard time uh, justifying the distribution of those funds. It's something on the order of $4 billion a year when I was in education. Um, and so they've they've started throwing, they, they've just started widening out the things that you can spend the money because the tax is there. It's being taken because it's government and they never give tax money back. So what I would the what I would support in the U.S. is a redirection of TIF funds that you're already spending and add TIF funds to internet. Um, because right now it's not taxed in that way. Add a tax to that and use that to subsidize last mile broadband. And let's define broadband reasonably as like 50 megs and up, not not four megs, I think is the current definition of broadband, which really isn't broadband. I, I would set a national standard of 50 megs and up and use those funds that are already being collected, those $4 billion a year, to run those 50 meg connections to the last mile. That's the platform I would run on if I were running for president. Hmm. I don't know. Just in a, in a post Snowden revelation world, I don't really like the idea of the government having no pretext of hoops to jump through before they have access to all of my data. So, and in the government run situation, then, you know, they're the carrier, they would have access to it. And since it would be for the children, you would not be able to stop them from accessing it without being, you know, a communist ISA, you know, sympathizer type person. I don't know the best way to do it. There, there's got to be a way, but I can't think of a good way because every way I think of presents other issues that I like less than having not quite broadband capability. What's going to happen is wireless technology is going to make this a moot point. Yeah. Um, as it did with telephones. Lots of people don't have copper running to their houses anymore because they have wire, they have radio waves running to their houses. We have better, yeah, maybe not better. We have as good cell phone connections as a rural hardline connection. Uh, and in some cases, it's better, but not not necessarily in rural areas. So some technology is going to come along, and it's probably already there. 4G, 5G, 8G, whatever it is, is going to trump that. And it's a whole lot more cost-effective to stick a tower somewhere than it is to run lines to different houses. But I think that it's not unreasonable to expect some sort of public infrastructure for bandwidth, just like we have public infrastructure for roads and we have public infrastructure for uh, the airwaves, uh, airways, you know, that's a regulated industry. And right. we have, you know, there's lots of things like that uh, that are the railroads, for example, that, that are 
they're they are infrastructure they are the the skeletons on which the 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 sinew and skin of the country is built and broadband is rapidly becoming that and like um jason here i think that it's better to get ahead of that instead of being uh, reacting to it until we find out that we we now have a class of citizens who are really truly disadvantaged by their lack of access to broadband let's go ahead and and open that up and get ahead of this something governments anywhere are not known to do um right those are my thoughts and wait a few minutes and i'll have others Seth has no comment, so we'll move right on to the next bit of listener feedback. David says hello, and he's responding to a, an older uh, uh, show as well, um, and one that we've said several times, the command, pseudo, send us an email. His response is, error, you're not in the list of pseudoers. Seriously, though, I'd like to say hello. Specs, name David, location U.S. Northern Idaho, age 20, job electronics manufacturer, hopefully soon to be web developer. Information. I'm a new listener, just started a week or two ago, and I'd like to say that I enjoy your show, and it's a great place for me to learn more about the Linux world. I myself have been in the Linux world for about six months now, and I have um, had tried a couple of years ago to install Ubuntu 12-something on my tower PC, but my driver wasn't supported, so I dropped it. When I got my first laptop, I dual-booted and found that when the internet works, it's amazing! <laughs> I didn't realize about installing different desktop environments, so I just used Unity. What a waste. <laughs> His words, not mine. The laptop just died just a year ago, and when I bought my new laptop, it was UEFI, UEFI enabled with Windows 8, which I hated. So I figured out how to dual boot, even uh, eventually installed Mint on it, and have since completely deleted Windows. I miss some of my games and a few other programs, but for the most part, I can do everything I want and more. Meaning you can do things you don't want? Um, I don't know if you've touched on this or not, but as far as video editors go, PTV has been my favorite and recommend it if you haven't tried it yet. We did talk about PTV a long time ago, like episode 12, something like that. Um, and it was it was in the top of the list then. Um, hmm. Moving on, as for the show, call me weird, but I enjoy listening to pretty much everything but books and TV shows out of order, and your podcast is no different. If anything, I became all too aware of how much the show has evolved from the humble beginnings, and must say that you've come very far, and hope you keep up the good work. The first Linux podcast I actually listened to was Linux Outlaws, but couldn't get into it for a few reasons, which I won't discuss here. That's when I found your show and decided to stick around since I liked it so much. Of course, since I've yet to listen to an episode from 2014, most of the news is old. But I'll still find a lot that I didn't know or news uh, or news that is related to current news to give me a good context. I think I've said all I wanted to, so I'll leave you with that. Thank you for the hard work, and I'll catch you guys later. Cool. So, welcome, David. And in 2017, when you hear this, glad to have you aboard. Yes, welcome indeed. So, uh, man, I hope you didn't go back that far because, yeah, those early shows were, you have to be, you have to be a serious fan to go back and brave those. You know, I hear from people all the time who, who say that, you know, I've, I'm caught up and I've gone back to the first episode and started listening and, you know, and I'm okay with that. I, I, those are out there. They are part of our body of work. Um, certainly they don't stand up to the, the standards of today. But hopefully we'll look back in five years on this show and say the same thing. So right. you know, it's, it is what it is. We've been doing this for a few years now. 
I would be greatly disturbed if we hadn't gotten better in that amount of time. My concern, though, is somebody like David who listens to a show, finds out about us, and decides, I'm going to start with the first episode and listen through. I wonder if it would be good enough to even keep anybody around. I, I wouldn't. If I listened to our old shows, the first three or four especially, I wouldn't come back. So there it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then again, sometimes I say if I if I were to listen to that show, I wouldn't come back on a recent one. So, you know, it, they happen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we're, we're glad you're here. Um, hopefully you will stick around and maybe you're getting caught up and, you know, it'll be just a couple of months before, uh, although whenever you get to the burping episode, let me know. Ah, <laughs> uh, the burp episode, the, the funniest accident ever. Yeah. Right. I, it, it, that's, that's what made that so great is I wasn't trying to do it. I was trying to be good. And so nobody knew there was a problem because. Uh, yeah, it was just funny stuff. All right. Uh, moving on. Richard needs a new challenge. Says, Dear Mark, Chris, and Seth, firstly, let me thank you for mentioning Suzanne and myself on a show recently. Your kind words meant a great deal to both of us, along with the EDL, EDL listeners who sent us messages via Google+. Suzanne has deteriorated as the cancer continues to spread and is now in hospice and will not be coming home. But she still shows her stubborn streak and continues to fight, even though we know it's only a matter of time before she dies. Now for the main points of my email. And contrary to the ethos of this show, it's about using Linux. First you bring us the downer about your wife dying. Now you want to bring Linux into it. Wow. Richard, it's a good thing I like you. <laughs> Recently, I completed an experiment where I used Google Web Apps on Ubuntu on a daily basis to see if they could be a viable alternative to a full-blown office suite and allow me to access my files, emails, and calendars across multiple, multiple devices running on both Windows and Linux. After a good month of testing, I was pleased to say that the experiment was a complete success. However, using a 4th Gen i5 laptop with 16 gigs of RAM and a 3rd Gen i7 desktop with 32 gigs of RAM was probably overkill to say the least. The only real issue I encountered was the odd Chrome crash, but that was about it. Offline access to my files and emails wasn't an issue once I had enabled offline mode in Google Drive and used the Gmail offline web app. I was even able to print without issue. Now this leads me to my second point. I'm in need of something else to try, be it a distro or a piece of software. I'm open to suggestions and willing to try anything once. By the way, Chris, I think you should have a look at Ubuntu Mate, it's been getting some pretty good reviews, and I might well surprise you. And I know you like Asus laptops, and yes, they are very good, but Lenovo produced some great laptops, and I can personally recommend the i5 version of the B5400. Kind regards to you all, Richards from Ramsgate, Kent, United Kingdom. Richard, thanks for your feedback, and audience, I post it to you. Uh, what challenge would you have Richard try in the world of, of Linux? Not a distro challenge, not, you know, do this for 30 days. Let's do something that people said can't be done in Linux or isn't easy. And let's let Richard really try that. Uh, I've watched his posts on Google+. Plus. I know the frustrations he's had uh, with things, and I like the fact that he's dogged and he keeps trying. And, you know, he had a good experience. He you, he lived completely in the Googleverse, in the cloud, um, which is something, you know, when I look back at my use of, of computers, it is largely um, in the cloud. There aren't a lot of things I do. I, I rip DVDs 
on my machine. I post this, edit this show on my machine. Almost everything else is in the cloud. So I could see, you know, uh, where how Richard, who doesn't post a podcast, <laughs> could do that. So right. what do you think, Seth? Any thoughts off the top of your head for a challenge for Richard? Man, I've, I've been sitting here trying to think of that, you know, and other than like, you know, tackling the, um, that, um, MOOC course out there on Linux and just going through it. I don't really know, you know, or, or how about this? Produce a, you know, get to use Blender and make a little movie, make like a, make like a five minute video in Blender. Oh, wow. There you go. I mean, if you, cause you know, from what I hear, you know, I've seen outputs of people who have done stuff in Blender and you can get good professional quality results if you put in the time, but I hear you really have to put in the time. So, you know, load up Blender. And the great thing about Blender is there's a Linux version and a Windows version. Um, but it's, it's a pretty standard Linux app. So it should be available for most all distros. Um, load it up and get to animating. I've tried Blender probably six times over the years and literally have never gotten past the first tutorial. It's just not not where my brain wants to go. I'm not saying it's unintuitive. If you're an artistic, developery, sculptory kind of person, maybe right. it's great. But, you know, because the, the tools are fairly simple. You you grab a light source and you grab a primitive and then you start texturing that. Um, and it's just, it's not how my brain works. It's not anything I'm into. Uh, so I'm a bad case. Uh, so Richard, if that's not a bad idea. Listeners, what say you? Uh, we'd like to hear you write in with uh, challenges, not challenges, but experiments for Richard uh, to do. Well, one of my first experiments several years ago, I forget what it was, was I called it the Ubuntu experiment. And uh, that was when I had used Linux on servers at work a lot and used Linux in the background, like on thin clients and things like that. But I hadn't lived in the desktop world. So I ripped out my hard drive, put another one in, put Ubuntu on it, and told myself I was going to live with this thing. Uh, and this was in 2008 era, so things were not nearly as polished as they are today, and it was a struggle. Uh, but I wrote a blog about the Ubuntu experiment as I went along, talking about my troubles, talking about how I spent a whole day just trying to figure out how to print, you know, and things like that. And I'm happy to say that a lot of those things just aren't problems anymore. Right. For a, for a large percentage of people, you can stick in a, a, a DVD follow a seven click install procedure and go um but there are still things that just are a little wonky and things you can't do uh so that would be interesting for to for something like that for richard he wanted to see if he could live in the cloud and he did what else what do you think listeners what say you all uh and then bit uh now our last bit of listener feedback is from gordon and he asks about movie formats. He says, hi, guys. I think we all agree that Plex is the killer app on Linux. I'm not sure I agree that it's the killer app. It's certainly a good app. Um, I've ripped much of my movie collection so I can keep the DVD away from the toddler and love watching Plex via my tablet in bed or the Roku on the TV. And the kids love being able to flip through their kids' movies in Plex. I've filtered, I've, but I filled an entire hard drive after several hundred DVDs, box sets of TV shows are a killer. My question is this. What format or resolution do you guys think is best for storing a video library? 
MKV is one of the best since it keeps all the information uh, of the original but takes up a lot of space. I can't imagine ripping full Blu-rays. Uh, a lot of times on the tablet, I notice that Plex is transcoding the resolution way down, and it isn't noticeably bad. Sometimes I've ripped the original audio at 160 down to 128 and don't notice a difference. What do you guys suggest is a suitable balance of quality versus small file size? I'm considering using Handbrake to batch convert the files down to something smaller rather than buy a second drive for more media storage. So, Seth, I know you can't speak to this because you haven't done it. I know Chris could if he were here, but uh, it's all on me. Uh, so here's here's what I've done. Over the years of doing this, and it's been years, uh, what I have found, uh, I use Handbrake, and here are the settings that I found. I use the MP4. I use the MPEG-4 wrapper, not the MKV. I use an H.264 Kodak with a constant bit rate. The handbrake has a quality slider. I set that on 16. That, in my experience, has been the good best blend of quality and file size. I do two stereo uh, audio channels. I do 160K AAC stereo mix down that gives, uh, you know, uh, Dolby 5.1 or whatever. Plus, I let the 192K AC3 pass-through go through. My home system can do the pass-through encoding, and so instead of having the computer uh, do the ripping and the encoding and turning everything to 5.1, I send that to the hardware, which does it a lot faster. And since I'm using a Raspberry Pi with, with very little processing power, that's a, that's a big thing to me. So I send that to the dedicated hardware to do that. If you mix down multiple channels like that, the player will decide which one is best to use for that. So that way I can have a single file that's 5.1 surround sound on my home theater, but plays just plain two-channel stereo on the kids' tablets. Um, and that's that's how I do that. I use the web optimize button. All that does is it adds a little file size, but it basically indexes the uh, the file and makes scan- scrubbing through it a lot faster. Fast forwarding, not just fast forwarding, but dragging the slider and moving to three quarters of the way through um, without that web optimized button, that takes a lot more processing power and is a lot slower. And I check the box for large file sizes. Not every, that's that's for a file size over four gigs. Not everything is over four gigs. In fact, most things aren't. Um, for example, transforms all the Transformers movies come in over four gigs because they're CGI. Um, when you have a lot of CGI, there's not a lot you can cut out when you're when you're mixing down because every pixel is different. It's rendered to be different. There's not a lot of waste there um and they're long movies you know they're two plus hour movies so those almost all come in at over four gigs most of my files um come in at one to two gigs um and it's but i always check that box because if you don't check the box on a four gig file it's unplayable if you check the box on a two gig file it doesn't matter ah little thing i've learned there and the and the trick that i've done is forced subtitles um Handbrake has that option. You check the box for four subtitles. So in a movie like, um, for example, The Avengers, where you've got Russian speech and you've got Indian speech um, and you've got those things that, that are subtitled, you don't have to go grab the subtitle files and throw them in your media player. The uh, Handbrake will look at that, and anytime a subtitle is tagged as forced, it'll burn it into the, the image. So it's now part of the video. It's not a separate file. I learned that later in my experience. So I have a file with a bunch of of uh, subtitles in it, like for the Star Wars movies, for example, the alien dialogue. Um, 
before I realized that. And then the rest of my movies are great. Uh, that just burned right in. So the problem with the the subtitle, for example, when my kids are watching it on their tablets, they don't have that access to that. They don't have that file, and I'm not going to copy it down and point it to it, all that. So that four subtitle things, one of the favorite features of a handbrake I ever found. So those are my settings. Um, and I don't know if they will work for you, but they work for me. And, you know, I ended up having, I have uh, a 750 gig drive and a one terabyte drive. So at, at some point I filled up the 750 gig. I had to move, and instead of copying everything over, I just moved to a one terabyte and I'm not sure where that is right now. They're big. It just is that. It bees what it be. Um, right. But typically, one to two gigs is what I see things run right around two gigs. Like kids' movies that are that are really compressible and and you know like uh, Fern Gully, something like that that my kids like to watch. Old style animation. There's lots of reusing of backgrounds, so those are highly compressible. Uh, so those those get really small. Sometimes even sub one gig. But a modern movie at two hours length is going to be two and a, to two and a half gigs in my experience using those settings. I don't know if you consider that too big or not, but that's what it works for me. I have a question for you, Mark. You talked right. about um, uh, foreseeing subtitles. Does that yes. mean they automatically display or is that just something yes. behind? So even, okay, but it would only do it like if I'm playing the English version, it would only do it for foreign uh dialogue right so okay it's whatever the when they burn the dvd the the subtitles are there and some of them can be marked as forced saying always display these subtitles right uh now in a movie like say avatar james cameron there there's not a subtitle file for that it's burned into the video and he did that so he could get the font and the color that he wanted um, so all of the alien language is in that bluish font. Uh, uh, and so movies like that, it's not an issue. But um, for, for example, the Avengers, uh, what Handbrake does is the same thing that James Cameron did for Avatar. It takes the subtitle file and burns it and makes it part of the impact. So now it's inseparable and, and it just plays all the time automatically. Gotcha. And if something is not tagged as forced handbrake uh is smart about it and says it does this pop up less than 10 percent of the total movie length if yes i'm going to assume this to be a foreign language subtitle if no i'm going to leave it alone cool so a movie like say crouching tiger hidden dragon where the whole thing is subtitles you would have to go in and make handbrake select that one because it's not going to see that it's going to say this is every word this is the the french soundtrack on an english cdd a C, a dvd or this is right. uh, you know the closed captioning track it's not going to do that because it's every dang dialogue uh, word of the movie right um but if it's i'm pretty sure the the line is 10 percent. it's intelligent about that so that, one of the reasons i like handbrake is because it's it's made by people who use it and so it's got all these neat features just because the people who are using it need that and so once I discovered that feature, and that was just this year, uh, I, like I said, I've been doing this for since like 2010, um, and I just discovered this that this year. It was so important to me that I actually went back and re-encoded a lot of my stuff so I could get away from those SRT files, subtitle files that you have to grab otherwise. Cool. And it doesn't, it just adds, what, a couple of K to the file size? Not that much at all? Maybe a few hundred K. Yeah, it's not much. It definitely doesn't make a, a two-gig movie a three-gig movie. Awesome. 
So see, not only did you educate me, those were awesome questions, and now our audience is educated as well. I hope so. Um, and, you know, that's certainly not about Linux, but it is about us, and that's what this show is about, right? It's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. That is my life. My employer runs Linux, so I have to figure out ways to make make the, the movies work. Uh, and ripping on Linux, by the way, with Handbrake is way better than on Windows. On Windows, the, the developer ripped out, actually on Linux as well, he ripped out the, the Lib CSS DVD, Lib DVD CSS, I can't remember what it is, but the thing that cracks encryption on DVDs. Uh, and he did that to bow to pressure. On a Linux system, if you've got anything else that installs that library, like say VLC, it can use it. On Windows, you're out of luck. So on Windows, I have to use uh, another tool to rip the DVD and then handbrake to convert it. Um, and I'm totally blanking right now on the tool that I use to rip it. Um, DVD fab. That's it. That's the tool I like to use. Um, and so you have to, it's a two step process on Linux for almost all discs. It's a one step process. Pop it in uh, handbrake rips it and converts it all in one shot. Saves me time. And uh, it saves me hassle for the the for the, some of the really latest new new movies. Handbrake hasn't caught up with it yet, uh, so I might have to even go back to Windows and pull out DVD Fab to rip it, and then uh, and then I copy it over and let Handbrake uh, convert it. But Linux environment Handbrake is by far the best tool to use, in my opinion, for ripping. It's not the simplest tool. There are other simpler tools, but Handbrake has. The right mix of features and functionality and ease of use. It's it's not hard. You gotta you just gotta know the the, the buttons. You gotta read the documentation. RTFM, as the guys in the forum like to say. Once uh-huh. you read the documentation and become familiar with it, it's a great tool. We always gotta be with the reading stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, gosh, we're an hour in and just got to our listener feedback. So we're probably going to have some abbreviated news, but that's all right, because this show is all about you, not necessarily about news. But let's start out with the Linux Foundation has an article that says, Linux certs are hard. Uh, That is correct. This article we found over on ZDNet. um, And according to a study, you know, this is just some numbers and, you know, numbers, you got to have them. Uh, But 93% of hiring managers are looking to employ Linux professionals. Um, and so, you know, the Linux Foundation unveiled, I was there at the live unveiling, woohoo, uh, <laughs> you know, the certified sysadmin and certified engineer. And the problem is the tests are freaking hard. Um, the pass rate on these is below 60%. And at this point, they're kind of only out there for the people who are using Linux to try. Um, but even having, and the, the reason these tests are so hard is it's not like, how do you do this, A, B, C, or D? You're basically kind of given a Linux environment and you have to do it. There's actually like three different versions of the test. There's like an, um, an Ubuntu, CentOS, and then some free, some OpenSUSE um, are the three different versions. So you test in which one you're doing. But yeah, so 60% of the people, only 60% of the people are passing this on the first time. Um, it's kind of cool. You can, you can schedule your tests. It, they cost $300, but you have up to a year 
from the time you scheduled it because these are proctored tests. You know, you can't take them at home. You have to go to a testing center and they have to have, you know, kind of schedule all that out. So they're $300. So you want to know before you go and take it because they are so hard. Now, and Mark, if you fail it, it's $300 again the next time. Yeah. So Mark, if you had questions on how to learn Linux so that you would be more prepared for this, do you have any suggestions on where one could go for that? You know, let me think about that. Um, but before we before we jump into the ad, thank you for the great segue, Seth. I'm going to blow it up. Man, uh, I don't I think it's a. It's not a bad thing that these tests are hard. It's Definitely. a good thing. Uh, if everybody who took the test passed, if that a 97 percent pass rate, this would, in my opinion, not be a valid test. The idea is, the guy who passes this test is the guy you can safely hire into your company, and who will know his stuff. And we haven't really had that. We've had Linux Plus. Uh, we've had um, the uh, LPIC Level 1 uh, and Level 2, but they're, those are introductory level tests. And that's fine. You need introductory level. That's, you know, um, um, Net Plus and Security Plus. And what's the other one, Seth? Uh, well, there's Server Plus, A Plus. Uh, a Plus. That's yeah. the one I was thinking of. Those are all entry-level stuff. And it says, if you can pass this, this is a guy you're not going to have to watch to keep him from blowing stuff up. But he's not a, a server admin material just because he can pass the A+, plus or the Net+, plus or the Security+. Plus. And that's fine. We need those certifications. But we also need the the certified Novell engineer test. We need the Microsoft Systems Engineer test. And right now, we don't have those in Linux. So the Linux Foundation went out and made them. And they made these things hard. And that's good because the person who can pass this has skills. They know what they're talking about. You can walk in and lay a resume down that says I'm a Linux Foundation certified engineer certified, and they're going to go, yes, you're a guy that we want. It's not there yet. It's still new, but it's going to get that by virtue of the fact that they're hard. How do you get there? One of the ways you can get there is from our friends over at linuxacademy.com. What they started out doing the entry-level stuff, because that's where the greatest need is. But they are actively working on these Linux Foundation certifications as well. They're cranking out content for that. But you got to start somewhere. So the Linux Academy's primary goal is to take you from being a beginner to being a Linux administrator. Not necessarily a 10th-level wizard neckbeard. That comes later. And they will get you there, I'm sure. But they got to, they had to start somewhere. And the where they're starting is to take you as a beginner. You're a guy who knows computers. You're pretty good with stuff. You're not scared of them. But you're not a Linux user. You're not a server admin. That's okay. They're going to take you to be a server admin. They're going to do that in form, by the way of these step-by-step video courses. That's where it all started, these YouTube-style videos. But then it's gone, grown so much more beyond that that you have not just the videos, but you've got the 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 study guides that go with the videos, um, th- so that you can watch. They're time coded to the videos. They've got practice quizzes that go along with it. They've got um, tests, uh, 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 sample exams, right? So when you're ready to go for your certification, they've got a practice exam for that certification, uh, and they manage all of this in this this great environment where you set the time. Using their learning management uh, system, you say, I've got five hours a week I can devote to this. And they'll tell you, all right, well, if you've only got five hours a week, it's going to take you this long to learn this. And these are the things you got to do. If you can give me five hours a day, then you can do that. So it lets you, you know, dial in your, your amount of commitment and they're with you every step of the way. 
that one of the most amazing things is their lab platform. You get to have up to, you can pick between eight different Linux distributions, um, server distributions, and you can have up to four of them running at a time in your own virtual network communicating with each other uh, you can you know you can name them arbitrarily so that you have a an intelligent host name that you know okay this one is web uh, server this one is database server you can make these things go and like Seth was saying this that's the way testing is going these days it's not multiple guess anymore it's show your work it's here's a server install a lamp stack on it hook it up to uh, a, a database and sync that database with another database over here. That, those are the kind of things that you got to do now. Linux Academy is perfectly positioned to that because they've already got the infrastructure right there. They give you up to four running simultaneous servers running in the Amazon cloud system, so they're highly reliable and they're fast. And it's safe. If you blow one up, no big deal. You hit the reset button, uh, Amazon spins you up another one almost immediately. You can do all these things. You can you can control the DNS. You can control, control all that sort of stuff. And that's just a freebie they threw in there. Here, here's this new awesome server thing. And the the uh, the learning uh, plan system that I told you about, that where they let they let you tell them when you're available. These things, these are tools that I wish I had had available to me a long time ago. I don't anymore. Uh, I haven't, uh, rather, not anymore. I, I didn't when I started. I had to learn things the much harder way. I wish I'd had these tools. But here's the good news. You do have these tools. You guys who are 20 years behind me, who are just getting started, go to linuxacademy.com and sign up. D- take my word for it. Just do it. Sign up for $25 for the first month. Check it out. If you don't think it's worth $25, cancel it. Send me a nasty email. I'll give you your 25 bucks back. I believe in it that much. But you're going to like... Seth just gasped when I said that. Uh, um, But if you decide to stick around, and I'm pretty sure you will, go ahead and buy a quarterly package. That knocks it down to only 20 bucks a month. Or if you're really committed to this, and you really want to actually turn your career around and use Linux Academy to do it, 199 bucks for a year. That's less than $17 a month. When you go, use the code Everyday Linux. Let them know that we sent you. And I'm serious about that. If you go there and you have a negative experience and you don't like it, I will refund your money. Don't be a jerk about it, right? But if you're honest about it and earnest, and you really don't like it, I believe in it that much that that I will actually pay you. I'll give you a money back guarantee. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, one thing I want to say, we've I don't know that we've really talked about this before. If we have, it's been a long time. Um, they are synced up with like LinkedIn. And so if you are going to embark on this profession, you can like, has you, has you finished these modules, there's a one button you could post to LinkedIn. So you could show, Hey, I've just completed introduction to Linux. Hey, I've just completed, you know, magic carpet 101, whatever, whatever you're working on. When you finish that module, you can post it. And so you can use your LinkedIn has sort of like a transcript and, Anyone who was going to look at your profile would be able to see, wow, he's completed this. And then a day later, he did this. And then a day later, he did that. Then a week later, he did that. And they can see that, hey, he didn't just like, you know, spend one night in a monster field, you know, hue and just pass everything. But he's been going on this steadily over time. So that is another way that you can show your progress and make yourself um, kind of distinguish yourself from the crowd in Linux administration. Awesome. 
All right, let's move on to our next story. The sky is falling. Flashlight apps can be the death of you. Yeah, this, um, I thought this article, I mean, you know, okay, anytime you've, you've got to get through some FUD, but I thought this did a pretty decent job of talking about the dangers of not just flashlight apps, but any apps. And we've talked about this, uh, before about how all the permissions they ask for that they may not necessarily be using, but just, Hey, you know, the advertising network might want to use this for some other reach because, you know, you think about it. It's a flashlight app. It doesn't need to know my contacts. You know, it doesn't need to know my search history. It doesn't need to know, be able to send text messages because it's a freaking flashlight. So it just goes to whatever, take the time and know what you're installing. Don't just click. Yes, I agree. Take the time and know what you're installing. And hey, you have a flashlight app. Which flash did you get the flashlight app? That's a cool flashlight app. Or did you get the flashlight app that was designed to be a gateway for muck and crap to get on your system? So again, you know, yes. Oh, the sky is falling. You know, I'm undone because I can see in the dark now with my phone. You know, no, not that, but be smart when you're installing. Does this add, does this app need to do this? Are you okay with this app? Do I mean, I've went to install apps before and I was like, I don't want this app to have that permission. So I did not install it. Um, but I took the time to do it beforehand. And that, that's all this story is about. Yeah. What I do is obviously I check that. So I've, I installed a level app one time. I was hanging some pictures. And needed to use the accelerometer as a level, and I clicked the download button, and Google Play said this needs access to your contact book, access to your uh, internet, access to your phone call log, and I went, no, not only no, but expletive no, not going to happen. But I also have a, a firewall app on my phone that uh, it's set to blanket permit everything, but I can selectively say this app gets no data. So if I if something is suspect, if I'm not sure about it, um, if I want to go ahead and use it in any way, it's the best I can find, or I'm in a bind and I'm just going to do it temporarily, like the level app, I would do that. I would install it, and before I run it, I would go turn on the, the Android firewall that blocks that app from dialing home. I would use it, and then I would uninstall it. So that's, you know, extra steps there, but, you know, you, you have to be careful in this world because... Um, Unfortunately, the ability to serve ads on Android gives requires a great deal of of permissions. So anything that's ad supported will want to check your call state and have free access to both data and Wi-Fi, and they have to do that because of the the prepackaged ad banner th- software that they're using. So it's not entirely the developer's fault. It's not entirely Google's fault. It's somewhere in between. Uh, but yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah, more of that story. You know, and here's the thing: people wouldn't blindly install this stuff on their desktop because there's a certain level of the average user knows this is bad on the desktop. Now, some people are still going to do it anyway, but people don't think about it on their phone, and they probably have more personal information, more financial information, more valuable information hidden on their phone that they use than they do on their computer, but they don't think twice about letting everybody and their dog and their cat and their fourth cousins, twice removes college ex roommates, best friends, turtle, look at anything on their phone. 
They just, they don't think about it because, oh, it's an app. Voila. Yeah. Also, be careful who you hand your phone to. Definitely. Just while we're at that. Yeah. Uh, if, if you hand me your phone, I'm going to post something on your Facebook account. That's just, <laughs> unless, unless I say, I promise I won't do it this one time. I, I'll, I'll make that guarantee, but that guarantee is never a blanket guarantee. It's a, uh, this one time you really need me to do something. <laughs> so I won't take advantage of it. But no, people at church, if they leave their phone around, you know, they'll come back and then there'll be something about how they like to eat boogers or something just because <laughs> I'm that kind of guy and I find that stuff amusing. All right. So since we're already into the hour plus mark, um, pick two. Oh dear. Um, see, we'll do that one and uh, we'll have a negative story. So we'll do that one. Okay. That one scares me. So let's go with it. But, uh, Apple pay, it's been a big thing. Some real retailers say not in my backyard. Yeah. And actually by some, we mean the overwhelming majority, um, <laughs> are say are they're blocking their NSF readers and preventing Apple pay from working at their store. Um, because they are in the process and these are like big boys like Walmart, uh, 7-Eleven, Best Buy, Kmart slash Sears. Uh, there's a payment app they're working on called Current C. And this is the, it's kind of like trying to cut the credit card and bankers like out of it. And so they're going directly to your, um, account with a debit card. Um, and so in, you know, and they don't want people using Apple pay because then there'll be no traction for the credit C when they roll that out. So, um, the, the real problem with the Apple pay is Apple takes a cut, right? And you know, you've already got visa taking a cut, right? Now you want Apple to take a cut. No, I'll do this myself. And I'll still have to give Visa their cut, but I don't have to give Apple theirs. I think that's more than trying to get traction for it. Well, I mean, but that's part of why they're doing it is because they're like, hey, we're giving, you know, Apple probably ask for some ridiculously high percentage because they're Apple and that's right. what Apple does. Um, but yeah, I don't care who does it. Yeah. I want to be able to turn on my Google wallet, tap my phone at the gas pump and go. Uh, I don't care who gets the money. I don't care who takes a piece of my transaction. I want that to happen. I want it to be secure, and I want it to be reliable. And right now, as far as I know, Walgreens is the only place I can do that with my phone. Yeah. So the the kind of the industry hope was now that Apple is getting behind this, that's really going to like make it like a, a big swell in the market, and there will be a rush to do this. But it doesn't seem to be that way. Um one of the funny stories is that they talked about the limited number of uh, people who are currently accepting Apple Pay and said, like, you know, there's like a dozen and eight of them are Foot Locker brands. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so this Apple Play, Apple Pay, the Apple was hoping would be a big deal and a lot of people were hoping to be a big deal. Looks like it's not a deal that the retailers want. So, um, you know, they, they see the brick and mortar retailers see they're under assault from, um, you know, the, um, internet, um, as well as, you know, they're already giving a cut to the, to the banks and now they want Apple's wanting an additional cut, which only means higher prices for us. So we will be paying extra for the convenience of using Apple pay. Um, but yeah, so it doesn't look like it's turning out that well. 
and Apple Apple put a lot into this. Yeah, um, it was it was the major feature of that and the big screens. Um, well, I mean, major feature of their new phones. And, and again, their major feature is something that Android phones have had for a while. So, you know, that's why I say that uh, the I, it's the best smartphone of 2012. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the last story, I I hate these kind of news stories. But, you know, it, it is what it is. We like to talk about, for example, uh, Munich moving to open source and saving money, schools moving to open source. Well, the, the door swings both ways. And Berlin has decided to move from open office back to Microsoft. Yeah, and here is a case where, you know, basically they were using a really old version of open office. And rather than update to even the current version of open office or LibreOffice, um, they're having a problem with the documents they create, other agencies, you know, other city agencies, as well as the federal agency in Germany are not able to easily access their documents and they're having trouble accessing the other documents. Well, had they updated to the latest version of OpenOffice, this wouldn't be an issue. Had they use, had they switched over to LibreOffice, which looks the exact same and would not function any differently from OpenOffice, except give you a few more features, um, it wouldn't be a deal. But so now they're moving back to Microsoft office and uh, apparently they have already started and it should be done by the end of next year. They were using open office uh, 3.2. So I wow. think, yeah. And Way old. I mean, you know, that, that that's like saying my office 97 won't work with today's Microsoft. Therefore, you know, office is bad. No, it's not bad. It's old and outdated. So um, here's here's how I read these tea leaves. They were going to have to upgrade. It's a big system. Upgrading is painful. Microsoft came in and said, look, you got to upgrade anyway. Upgrade to our product, no cost. It's on us. But the next upgrade, not so much. So Apple can, and Microsoft can do that. They can give everybody Office 2013 on all the systems uh, for the city of Berlin at no cost or, or a greatly reduced cost. And they're going to come in and say, probably even say, like they do this for schools, if you buy this license, we'll even let your employees take it home. Right. Because the, the school license does that. Let your students and teachers take it home because they know that the next time you got to upgrade, you're going to pay for it. Microsoft has been around for 30 years. They're looking to be around for another 30 years. They can have a long view of this. Well, and um, also, they would rather make a little money off of a lot of people than no money off of no people. So right. get everybody using their stuff, and then, you know, they build their market perpetually. You know, that's... So I I don't fault Microsoft for this. It's good business. Uh, the city of Berlin, uh, honestly, let's be totally blunt here. If you have the choice to give your dear people LibreOffice or the latest version of OpenOffice or Microsoft Office, and there was no cost benefit, you you pretty much are required to go with Microsoft Office. It is the industry standard, good or bad. There will be no compatibility issues with anybody else. Um, you, if Once you take cost out of it, there's no reason to do it. And Microsoft knows this. They are taking cost off the table. They're doing this in education. They're doing this in government programs. They're saying that we have a superior product, but people don't want to pay for it. So fine, we will make cost a non-issue. And that, you know, my last year, maybe the last two years I was in schools, I did that. I I didn't take Microsoft off. I left OpenOffice there and added Microsoft to it because they gave it to me at such a ridiculously low rate. It would actually have been 
malfeasance on my part not to do it. Because it is the standard operating system. Windows is, and Office is the standard suite. And there are benefits to being using the thing that everybody else is using. And when you take cost out of the equation, now you're just being a jerk if you still refuse to use it. So I'm I'm not mad at Berlin on this. Um, but the issue is that this is a short-sighted decision that will, I'm pretty sure, is going to cost more money in the long run. And And it's really... This is this the problem came from the fact that their IT support people never upgraded open office. That's the problem. That is the big problem. But you know well, you know, and here's the thing, you've got we're we're entrenched if you've been around software for a while, you had this version and you didn't upgrade to the next version because you stayed on this version and a new version meant new features and a new way of doing things. And in the modern technology world, that is simply not the case. You know, it's just different now. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the reasons that like Google or Chrome and Firefox automatically update to the newer version because that version is simply a number for reference. It isn't a major deal anymore. And, you know, and one of the things, if open office or LibreOffice, and honestly, I haven't even fired mine up because what little processing I do, I do in Google Docs now. I don't know if they will automatically update versus downloading a new version and installing it. If they would get the auto update feature working where you didn't have to totally download a new version just to get the updates, that would go a long way to stopping stuff like this from happening. My business just went from Office 2010 to Office 2013, and I've I've only been using it for a few weeks now, and I can't honestly see any reason to have upgraded. It's different, but it's not better. And that that's not a, a negative against Microsoft. That is the maturity of the Office suite. Um, there's, like I've said many times, there's no reason to upgrade from Windows 7 to Windows 98, uh, Windows 8. There's just, there's just nothing there. Or to go to Windows 10 now. There's just, there's no compelling reason. You get a new hardware, it comes with a new OS, fine. But there's no reason to go out and drop money on a new op- uh, operating system because we're so mature now that the ma- the changes are, are, you know, cosmetic or minor functionality or things that you could do with third-party apps. Or change for changing sake, which is never right. a good thing for your underlying system. Hey, we've got to give people a reason to update. Let's totally change everything. And then, wow, everybody hates this. I don't know why. It's new and yeah. different. That's why everybody uh, hates it. The, one of the first things I did when I got to, to work uh, at my new office two years ago was I grabbed Libra Office Portable and threw it on my machine. They wouldn't let me install anything, but I could do the portable version because I like it better than Microsoft Office. It, it's functional. It's it, it. In fact, it's more functional. I can open more stuff with it. Right. Um, and I can print to PDF, which Microsoft later has an add-in that you could do, and I think maybe the newest version does it natively, but it was built right into LibreOffice. It just had stuff that I liked better. So I use that. There's a shortcut on my desktop to the to the portable app, that's my primary thing. And I have been working with people who use Microsoft Office and don't know that Microsoft isn't synonymous with Office documents, and they don't know the difference. I open their stuff, they open my stuff, and and it's it works just fine. 
So for the entire city of Berlin to say, well, the, the open alternative just isn't acceptable, that's just wrong. Their ancient version was, but it's not the case that it's, that it's, that's the case now. It's not true anymore. Yeah, it, it's the same type of thing where you take a Mac computer, you know, a $1,500, $2,000 Mac computer, and you compare it to a $200 Windows machine and talk about how much awesomer Apple is because look at all the stuff this can do that this Windows machine couldn't do. You know, spend the same amount of money to get a comparable thing for comparison and then tell me that it is better or worse. And, you know, it, it's just not, it's not, it's not a fair comparison that, but again, like you said, Microsoft is doing everything they can to stop the uh, tide of open source that's rising against them. And they have deep enough pockets to make the cost so small that they can still turn a profit off of it. Yeah. All right. That's it for our news. Uh, let's move on now to this week in history where Seth has two, got them two historical events. Yes. Uh, well, this week in history, October 24th, 1861, the first transcontinental telegraph line across the United States is completed. And then two days later, October 26, 1861, the Pony Express officially ceases operations. The Pony Express had troubles before that. Right. It was never really an effective way to do things. But then when you had something that was a million percent better, there was just no reason for it anymore. What What is your show closing spectacular? What have you got this week to make my productivity go down so that you look better? Okay, I came across this website. Um, this is how to gird up your loins, an illustrated guide over at the artofmanliness.com. So how to gird up your loins. Um, just, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff on here. And some of it is. Oh, I love the art of manliness. Yeah. I've, I've been a, uh, had that in my RSS feed for years. Uh, it's a, it's a great thing. But, um, a lot of times they define manliness as what your grandfather did. Right. Um, which is not necessarily true, but they're going way back here to what your great, 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 great grandfather did. Right. Yeah. Art of manliness. Uh, and this is how to gird up your loins. So if you're a Christian and if you, grew up on the King James version of the Bible and you've ever heard a sermon talking about um Elijah uh yeah Elijah where he girded up his loins and outran a chariot this is what he did yeah so basically it's to take the skirt that you're wearing and tie it up in a bunch between your legs and turn it into a skirt <laughs> but hey whatever works and we've lost Seth, so I will just go ahead and say that uh, if you want to be on this show in your own way, either through the email, like we uh, all the people we had today, or if you want your own voice to appear right beside us, you can do that. You can go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page. That will send us a very nicely, neatly formatted email, and you will get in the queue to be on the show. If you, again, want to have your voice alongside mine, you can call 559-IMOP anywhere in North America. That is a free call on Google Voice. Leave us a voicemail, and uh, I will play it on the show. If you live outside the country or you don't want to call a Google Voice number, whatever, uh, just send me a, a file, an MP3 or a, whatever you got. Of just keep it small, keep it under a couple of minutes, and and we'll do that. We love hearing, we love doing these listener feedback shows. In fact, they're they're my favorites because we like uh, I like the fact that um, 
you know, I we come here every week. We do this thing. We never really know how well it's being received. Uh, and so these listener feedback shows give us an idea. And some of these people, you know, that we hear from regularly, um, that's great. But I want to, I, 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 this is a challenge to the person out there who's never sent us an email. Do it. Do it now. Send us an email. Let us know what you think. Ask a question. Just let us know you're out there. Just say hey. Because it really it it's a it really means a lot to me. That's that's the uh, that seems sappy, but it's true. When somebody sends me an email uh, or becomes you know uh, a part of our community, like like Richard, I I, I don't want to pick on Richard. You know he's going through a really tough time in his life right now, and he shared that with us because he this isn't just a listener host relationship. We are a family. We're a community. Um, everybody out there, once you start listening to the show, you become a member of our family and, and I can't care for you in the way that I would like to, if I don't know you. So you've got to reach out to me. I'm here every week reaching out to you. You've got to reach out to me and say, Hey Mark, this is me. Let, get to know me a little bit because I'm now a part of your family. Uh, and I, I loved that. I want to share in your joys and your struggles. Um, I, I get, sorry, that's super sappy, but it's true. And so I, I need, uh, I don't need, but I would like very much to hear from you folks. You could do all that over at elementop.com. Use the contact us button. Or if you just want to send an email director directly, that's edl at elementop.com. That goes to all three of us. If you think I'm censoring the mail, uh, you can do it that way. Uh, but we would love to hear from you. Any comments, Seth? Uh, no, I just uh, came back in the group to say goodbye. I dropped out. <laughs> again in the middle uh at the beginning of my art of manliness thing so we'll just let it go yeah, so i filled in for you and we went from there so uh seth thanks for uh for doing this with me this week uh chris we look forward to you coming back and i'm gonna say oh of course also the listener thank you for listening but i'm gonna say that ends this episode of the